If you're visiting with us, I want you to know we happen to believe that the Bible is God's word. So what we do when we get together like this on a Sunday is we look at different sections of the word. And so we are looking in this series of what the Bible tells us about David, this amazing individual. So if you have a Bible, grab it or Turn it on. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And we want to go to this fascinating, most interesting Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. Now, in the Bibles in front of you, it's around page 290. If you get to the Psalms, you've gone too far. If you get to Revelation, you're really in trouble. (laughs) But let me just say this. I'm going to take a couple minutes to unpack this because this is important for us as we go through this series. This is more than just a series on David. Because when we come to the New Testament, Jesus tells us that everything in the Old Testament points to him. The law, the prophets, the history, this is a section on history. Um, All of it points to Jesus. So our approach in this series on David isn't to merely look at how we can be like David, but it's to look at how we can rest in, uh, rejoice in, uh, thrive in Jesus. Because David continually and repeatedly points to Jesus. He prefigures Jesus. So a couple of weeks ago, for example, when we looked at the famous story of David and Goliath, when David takes on Goliath, David there acts as Israel's representative, kills the giant, while the entire Israeli army is quaking in bondage to fear. And when David acts as Israel's representative, he's picturing Jesus, who acts as our representative. And goes to the cross and dies on the cross in our place for our sins to liberate us from our bondage to fear and sin and dysfunction and death. Then the next week we looked at a story of Jonathan and David. And we discovered in that uh, story a, a remarkable event when Jonathan, who is the crown prince, the son of King Saul, the one that will assume the throne, he with David, standing before David, takes off his royal robe, gives it to David, gives a sword to David, and in that act, he is saying, David, I'm relinquishing my right to the throne to you. David, you will be the king. Here, take this. And the moment Jonathan does that, he pictures Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave up his throne. He surrendered or laid aside his glory in heaven. And became a man. And humbled himself. And became submissive to the point of death. So that we might reign with him. So we might share in his throne. Forever and ever. Then last Sunday... And honestly, it's one of my favorite accounts in all of the the David material. There is one lone priest that survives King Saul's murder of 85 of the rest of the priestly family. And the surviving priest flees to David. Because now this priest, like David, is on the run from Saul. 
And David, at the end of chapter 22, says to the priest, Come, stay with me. Do not be afraid. You will be safe with me. And the moment David says that, he prefigures, he pictures Jesus Christ, who offers us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, salvation and eternal life. And when we come to Jesus and trust in him and embrace him as our Lord and Savior, we are safe forever. And so all week long, all this past week, and by the way, and some weeks are like this for all of us, this is one of the most stressful weeks I've had in a long time. All week long I've been saying to myself, Rob, Jesus says, you are safe with me. You will be safe with me. I love that. You will be safe with me. And I've had a, a, a peace and a, a contentment as I've rested in the Savior. You see, the spiritual life isn't about you and me sucking it up and attempting to do better. It's about recognizing how poor and needy before God we really are. And then resting in the safety and the security and the forgiveness and the righteousness God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now I say all this on the front end as we're continuing to motor through David because you may have never looked at David in the Old Testament in this way as prefiguring, as pointing to Jesus. And also because, frankly, you can't overcome in life. I can't. We desperately need a Savior. And he's right here in the Old Testament, in the life of David. Now this morning, we're going to continue and we're going to look at three chapters Three interesting chapters that come out of this wilderness, this time of testing in, in David's life when he's on the run from Saul. But we can tie them all together because there's one theme that dominates and sort of rises to the surface in each one of these three chapters, and it's this. Believers in God, do not repay evil for evil. We're going to see this in David's life over and over. To be a believer in Jesus Christ means you don't repay evil for evil. Now, I know this is not an issue for most of you. That's a joke. <laughs> but what we're going to see in David's, David's story here is just incredible. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at the what... Then I want to look at the why behind the what, and then underneath it all, above it all, I want to look at the how. So we're going to look at the what, the why, and the how. And let's start in chapter 24 and verse 1. Fasten your seatbelt. Crazy stuff here. Impossible stuff. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. Now En Gedi was just west of the Dead Sea. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men. He really wants to murder David. From all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. 
David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Now why? Well, he's conscience stricken because the royal robe symbolizes the throne. And to cut it, to cut the king's robe, is to desecrate the throne. Let's continue verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David comes out after Saul's gotten a distance, and let's pick up what David says in verse 10. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, referring to Saul as his father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me to take down my life. Now Saul is the reigning king. Saul knows that God has anointed David to be the next king. And because Saul has completely turned his back on God, and because Saul is living in this grip of paranoia and and fear and jealousy and envy and hate, Saul is trying to kill David, trying to thwart God's purposes. But David, he won't repay evil for evil. Now let's go to the next chapter, chapter 25. Now here, what's so interesting is here we have uh, an account of David faltering. Uh, David coming to the edge and almost giving in to sin. So let's begin reading in verse 2. A certain man and man who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Cableite, was surly and mean in his dealings. Sounds like some of our marriages, men. Verse 4, while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said, go up to Nabal at Carmel, greet him in my name, say to him, long life to you, good health, good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So in verse 9, they arrive, they deliver the message. Look at Nabal's answer, verse 10. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread, my water, my meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Now that's a bad answer. 
A really dangerous answer. Verse 12, David's men turned around, went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. And about 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David is on his way now to kill Nabal. He's about to repay evil for evil. What he wouldn't do with Saul. Now he's coming right to the edge. But Abigail, this man's wife, intervenes. And beginning in verse 23, we have one of the greatest speeches, I think, in the Old Testament. And the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament. So let's go there. Notice in verse 23, um, Abigail sees uh, David. Then in verse 24, she falls face down at his feet. Now get the picture. Uh, David, they're all ready for war. 400 of his warriors. Uh, they're grim. They're mad. And notice what she says. May my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and Folly goes with him. Now this is her husband. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men uh, my master sent. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, she's saying that because she's stopping him, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. This guy's, did I say this? So her husband. <laughs> and let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. And she goes on to say, if you were to wipe out um, the men in my family, you would be committing unnecessary bloodshed. She's absolutely right. And God intervenes and God brings this remarkable woman into David's life. And she says, David, stop. By the way, that's what God's people do. That's what friends and family members do when we get to the edge. We go to people in love, we say, stop. And David, to his infinite credit, listens to this woman he does not know. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 26, we have another story, a different story, of David sparing Saul's life again. David and his soldiers sneak into Saul's camp at night. They have Saul right there because the Lord has put everybody in a deep sleep. But he refuses to kill Saul. He takes a spear, and then he comes out. He yells at night, wakes up Saul and Abner, Saul's uh, chief defender, chief of security. And he says, Saul, I could have killed you. I'm not trying to kill you. Here's your spear. And here in chapter 26, we have the last ever conversation between David and Saul. And in a couple of years, Saul will commit suicide. He's gone so far off the rails. 
Now, in all three of these stories, David is on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's running from King Saul. King Saul's trying to kill him. In all three stories, David is being tested. He's being chiseled. He's being forged. That he would be one day one of the greatest kings in all of history. So here in this time of testing, you need to understand that David is jobless. David is homeless. David is hungry. David is being hunted. And in all three of these stories, chapter 24, 25, and 26, David is wronged. He is wronged. Yet in all three stories, David is a remarkable Old Testament picture of restraint of not repaying evil for evil. As a matter of fact, he's an Old Testament illustration of Romans chapter 12. Look at a couple of verses here from Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. David illustrates this. David pictures what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. So this is the point of these three chapters, this is the what, if you will. God's people do not, do not repay evil for evil. You see, God has a plan for your life. And that plan involves pain. Because God has a purpose for your life. And that purpose is to become like Jesus Christ. David is being wronged because David is being shaped, grown. Testing is painful, but it's also life-changing. And often part of that testing, what we see here, is it's learning how to deal with people who have offended you, people who have uh, abused you, people who have wronged you, people who have deeply hurt you and disappointed you. And David teaches us God's people don't take revenge. And instead of becoming overcome by evil, we overcome evil with good. Now, this is so radical, so counterintuitive, so countercultural. But here, what I want you to see is not just once, not just twice, but three times David does what is right despite what he desires. And biblically, that's self control doing what is right despite what you desire. David had legitimate, legitimate feelings of anger and bitterness and hate and betrayal and injustice and and rage. And though he wavers and gets right to the edge with Nabal. I mean, David's just like all of us. There are times we all get to the edge. Even though he, he gets right there, he doesn't capitulate to his feelings And one of our big struggles in life is we regularly capitulate to how we feel. David here, three times, does what is right despite what he desires. 
Now let me say it differently. Let me come at this a little differently because what David is demonstrating in these three chapters, and by the way, apparently this is a big deal in David's life and a big deal for the church because we have not just one chapter but three saying it differently. What David is extending to Saul is grace. To Nabal, grace. What is grace? Well, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, grace is one-way love. It's love that is extended to the undeserving. In David's case, to someone who's trying to kill him. Now let me put this in a larger theological context. You and I are most fully human when we deal with God when our spiritual lives are the most important things about us. We are most fully human when we are alive in God, when we love God, when we worship God, when we seek God, when we give ourselves to God, when we serve God. And uh, according to these three chapters, one, one of the main ways we reflect that uh, God-given humanity or God-intended humanity is by not just loving people who are lovable, people who love us, people who are easy, people who we click with. That's two-way love. But by loving people who don't deserve it. People who are different than us. People who have wronged us. Now, I am not saying you make them your best friends. You don't make them your best friends. David certainly doesn't do that with Saul here. Uh, David doesn't return to Saul. David doesn't go home with Saul. David doesn't say, hey, okay, let's get together. Uh, David continues to run from Saul. David doesn't trust Saul. But he refuses to pay, repay, I should say, evil for evil. And that's called grace. One-way love that has nothing to do the, uh, with the object of the person you are loving. So let me ask you, who's your Saul? Your Nabal? Who is it that has wronged you? This is not about Reconciliation. At least the David with Saul accounts. There's reconciliation that Abigail brings about. But there will never be any reconciliation between David and Saul. There never will be any reconciliation between David and Nabal because God will strike Nabal and he will die in a few days. You see, reconciliation requires two people. And you can't control reconciliation. But you can control how you respond to people that have hurt you, uh, disappointed you, uh, betrayed you. And look at how David puts it in chapter 26. Go to chapter 26 and verse 24. And I want you to note uh, the word value. David says, As surely as I valued your life today, Saul, So may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. So extending grace, 
uh, being a person that doesn't repay evil for evil, it, it, it comes when we assign value to the people that have betrayed us. When we see them as valuable in God's eyes. Even though they're our worst nightmare. Even though they've completely and totally devalued us. Now again, counterintuitive, countercultural, but exactly what David does. Now that's the what. Let me go on to the why. And let's get underneath this what and get under the surface a little. And so we ask the question, why was David like this? I mean, why was David so radically righteous in the face of radical hostility? And the answer is uh, because of his radical submission to God. You see, people who do not repay evil for evil are submissive people. Submissive to God. To God. And this is my second point. I want you to think about this as we look at this. Uh, Look at how David expresses this in chapter 24 in verses 6 and 7. Uh, Just go back there again. David says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Now here, we just had a, a bunch of you wonderful veterans stand. What I want you to understand, all of you to understand, is here David defies all military logic. All relational logic. Because he's in submission to a deeper logic, to a divine logic. God has placed Saul on the throne, I won't touch him. So submission is fundamentally a vertical thing. It's a faith thing. It's a function of our vision of God, our our, our confidence in God, uh, how big we see our God. David never says Saul is a good king. But he does say, God has made him my king. And I won't touch him. David isn't stupid. He's spiritual. He's not blind. He's believing. Biblical submission, therefore, I mean, this is a warrior. Isn't being indecisive, it's not being weak, it's not being a doormat. It's a radical allegiance to a third party, in this case, a divine third party, the God of the universe, who you believe will act justly in his time and his way. And this is exactly how David puts it in chapter 26 and verse 10. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. I want to help you understand this because there's all sorts of confusion about submission afoot today. Biblical submission isn't quitting. It isn't rolling over and playing dead. The point here is not that you let abuse continue. David didn't kill Saul, but he ran from him. 
And then we come to chapter 25. And Abigail, this remarkable, crazy, wise woman, upends all ancient Near Eastern social norms, going behind her husband back, and goes to David and speaks up and speaks out and says, my husband is a fool. (laughs) Don't listen to him. And what I want you to understand is submission is not, is not being silent. Submission means you go slow, you stay low, and you don't blow. Now you can remember that, right? You go slow, you stay low, you don't blow. You got it. It's living under the jurisdiction of another master, God. It's leaving room for the wrath of God because you believe the biblical promises, Romans chapter 12 promise, at least repeated in the New Testament, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let's be honest here. Not repaying evil for evil is one of life's most difficult disciplines. Uh, almost impossible. And what we're seeing is it, it requires submission to one greater than the one who has wronged you. Who is your Saul? Your Nabal. You can't control how he or she will respond to you, but you can control how you will respond to them. And David will become one of the greatest kings in all of history because this was a lesson God repeatedly hammered and chiseled and forged into his life. Now let's keep going. Now we come to the third part of this and we want to ask the question, well, how how do we live like this? Uh, How do we possibly do this? The answer in these three chapters is that you take your eyes off yourself. You're hurt. The person who has wronged you. And you lock your eyes on God who hurt his son for you. Now, I see two specific ways here that I want to mention. First of all, what I see is David locking on to the justice of God, believing, being confident in the justice of God. So a key for us as we see this is to, to be people that live in such a way that we are convinced and confident in the justice of God. Lock on to it. Look at how he expresses it in chapter 24. In verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, David, in speaking to Saul, is not expressing doubt. He's expressing certainty. He's saying God is going to judge us, Saul. 
And David refuses to exact or uh, demand revenge. And, and he's enabled to live in submission to God and God's time frame and God's agenda for Saul. And Saul's going to continue to live for some years because he's convinced that God is the ultimate judge. And he's a righteous judge. And he's a faithful judge who will always vindicate his children. But what I'd like just as much as David's understanding of the justice of God is Abigail's understanding of the justice of God. Her vision of the, the justice and the faithfulness of, of God. Actually, she exercised faith for David when David's faith is lapsing. She believes for David when David isn't believing and he's ready to murder her husband. And so Abigail comes to David and rebukes David. For failing to see the justice of God in this moment. Look at how she puts it in chapter 25 and verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master, that is the life of you, David, will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. What a metaphor. Abigail again is believing for David. When she says you're bound securely in the bundle, this bundle of the living God, bundle can be the Hebrew word for document. Suggesting that David's name is written and secure in the book of life. And so Abigail is saying, David, wake up. God is never going to let you go. God is never going to give up on you. God is not going to forget about the injustices you have experienced. God has your back. He is just. He is faithful. She is amazing. One of the strongest women in the Bible. Now, there's a second way, and I'll end with this. And here we come to Jesus. Because in addition, to, in addition to David being confident in the justice of God, I want you to live in such a way that you believe and you understand that just as David spared Saul, so Jesus Christ has spared you. You see, David pictures Jesus. You and I are Saul. Each and every one of us. We have sinned against God, we have wronged God, and we have wronged way more people than we care to mention. But while we were yet sinners, God in his mercy refused to hold our sin against us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became submissive to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Jesus died the death we deserve to spare us. To spare us. And when we come to Jesus and believe in Jesus, we are forgiven, we receive forgiveness, we receive righteousness, and we receive e eternal life. And God gives us a life we never thought possible. It's a miracle. Because he hurt his son for us. 
David in extending grace to Saul and to Nabal. This one-way love is a picture of Jesus' one-way love toward you. So ultimately, the ability to overcome evil with good and to live this counterintuitive life of, of submission to God, one comes comes about when you understand you are Saul and your wrongs nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And he took him for you. And he died for you. To take away all your sin, all your dysfunction, all your anger, all your rage, all your injustice, all that you have received and all that you have dished out. And in seeing these wrongs as nailing our Savior to the cross and seeing Jesus loving you anyway, you find the freedom to let go of those that have wronged you. And so if you are here this morning and you're a child of God, you're a believer in Jesus, cling to this grace, this incredible three-chapter picture of grace. And let it turn you and wash over you and transform you into a person of grace. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Uh, Acknowledge that you cannot overcome in life. You can't. It's an illusion. And thank him that he has overcome for you by dying for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this moment. Uh, We are here, God, as your people. We want you to speak to us and transform us and change us. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, we thank you that we can give to you. We thank you that we can give to you as as an act of our allegiance to you, as an expression of our love for you, recognizing how much you love us. And Father, as we sing, would you make our worship real? And would you take it deep down into the core of our being? For Jesus' sake, amen.